Keep your Bibles open to, uh, to James chapter 1. We're going to, uh, to look at that text that, that Tim just, just read with such gusto. Amen? Uh, and while you're doing uh, that, making sure that you have your outline with you that's found inside of that announcement sheet and your Bible open in James chapter 1, just a reminder that the Servant Heart Luncheon is going to take place immediately following our assembly this morning. If you signed up, and there were a lot of you that did, Really thankful for that, and, and so is Barry Newton and all of those that are working with Barry to put on this luncheon in, in which uh, you can discover ways that you can be involved in the outreach and the sharing of our faith and praying for people in our community to come to faith. Uh, that luncheon is going to fo- uh, follow immediately the assembly this morning. Just, in, just a reminder to encourage you that uh, as soon as we're done here this morning, make your way over to the fellowship hall and lunch will be served and you'll have a great afternoon together. Speaking with a word of prayer. Father, at the beginning of this year, we're grateful that we have an opportunity to come together this first day of the week to worship and to encourage and to hear and to speak and to give and to remember the great sacrifice John has reminded us of, Father, this morning, the great sacrifice that was made by your Son in order for us to not just be for, uh, to be forgiven and to be saved, but to be saved unto you. And as we begin the study of the book of James, Father, we're asking that, that, we not just, that we not just listen to these words, Father, but we really hear them, and not just see them on the pages, but really see them in such a way that through the giving of eyes that see and the ears that hear, we discern this message, and we discern our own lives, and we discern the, the merging of your word and our lives together in such a way that it honors you. To this end, we ask Father, for this blessing this morning as we open this ancient book of ancient words and study them to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody want to hazard a guess, just to guess what the theme of this year is? You know, Ben and I were standing over on this side of the stage and he leaned over and he said, you know, for people over in this area with Ben and I standing on this end, it looks like the theme is ample. <laughs> But the theme, as you can see from uh, the letters up here on the stage, is Amplify. Amplify. And as it says up there on the screen, we're going to live, out our, uh, live our faith out loud. What does it mean to, to, to amplify? Well, to amplify is, is to intensify. It's to magnify, to strengthen, to boost. When you amplify something, you enlarge it. When you amplify something, you expand it. To amplify something is to make it impossible to ignore. When you, when you amplify something, it makes it impossible to ignore it. They, when you amplify a voice, it means that you are making that voice heard over all of the other voices. When you amplify a guitar, it's to give it a distinct and unforgettable sound. One of the ways that amplifi- uh, amplification is used today in our technology-driven world and Western culture, is we talk about social amplification which is a message that is spread not, not just in the sense that it goes viral around the world, but it goes viral and it goes worldwide. This message is spread through all of the different waves of social media. So when we talk about wanting as a church to amplify our faith in 2016, this is what we mean. To amplify the faith is to make it stand out everywhere. To amplify the faith is to make it stand out everywhere. It's to make the way that we 
live and, and what we believe about Christ and our obedience, our trust, our perseverance, uh, our worship, all of those kinds of things, it is to take our faith and to make it ubiquitous. It's, it's, it's to make it known everywhere. It's, it's, it's to make it known in every place in this community. Every place where we go, the Christ is to be made known. But it's more than that. It's more than just it being known. It's for our faith in God as individuals and disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. It's for our faith in God to deepen and to sweeten and to become brighter and more engaging. It's for our faith to become provocative in the sense that when our lives and the lives of people around us in this community intersect, they're, they're forced to ask the question. They're compelled to ask the question, who are these people? And to ask the, 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 the follow-up question, can I get what they have? That's what it means to amplify. And so for this, to understand how to amplify our faith, we turn to the book of the Bible known as, as, as James. And for those of you who like to, to read uh, certain scriptures or uh, text to get uh, prepared, your mind prepared and your heart prepared for sermons and for teaching on Sunday morning, I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks, every day, read the book of James. Just a few chapters. You can read it very, very quickly. But not just the book of James. Also read the Sermon on the Mount as it's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount as taught by Jesus in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So we're going to look at the book of James. And we know with, with, with quite a bit of certainty that this book was written by the half-brother of Jesus who was known by James. It was written probably around the midpoint of the first century A.D., maybe 48, 49, 50 uh, A.D. It's known as a general epistle. If you look in your table of contents, uh, sometimes they have a listing of, of, of the books of the Bible in certain subcategories. This one is called a general epistle because it's not written to any one church in particular at least one that we know of. It, it looks like a, a letter that was written and, and circulated among churches and its general teaching about how to live the Christian faith. In fact, the letter of James is an example of wisdom literature in the New Testament. It, when you look at the Old Testament, you have, uh, you have Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the books of, of, of Moses, also known as the Pentateuch. You have, you have uh, the prophetic books, you have the historical books, and you also have books that are known as wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, the Proverbs, and it has to do with, with how you live your life. It's about a biblical wisdom. Now, one of the ways that wisdom needs, we need to get our head around the way that wisdom is, functions in the Bible is to understand what it is and what it isn't. There's this great quote from Gary Holloway, from, he's an Old Testament professor at ACU, that describes wisdom in, in James this way. He says, the word, as we find it in James, usually refers less to factual knowledge and more to skill. A skill that you need to live, the, the, the structure that you need and the skill you need to live life in a successful kind of a way. It's, it is more know-how than know-that. Particularly, biblical wisdom deals with knowing how to live. And so what James is going to teach us as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth in 2016 is how we are to live our faith out loud in this community, in the community of San Antonio. It's how disciples live faithfully and how disciples live visibly in their culture. Now, the first one of these that, that James addresses for us that makes, that, that, that makes the faith stand out is in the area of suffering. In the area of suffering. 
And the question we want to think about is, what does a disciple look like in times of suffering? What does a disciple look like in times of suffering? What does the way that we might go through a period or a stage or a phase or a couple of days or a string of days in suffering, what does it say or what can it say about God? Now the reason this is really important is because uh, for a lot of us, not only have we gone through suffering, but we've observed other people in, in those moments of suffering. And what we've seen is that suffering can cause people to walk away from God. Suffering can cause people to walk away from God. And, and for others, suffering is what brings them nearer to God. And the question I, I want to ask is, is it possible in suffering for us to deepen our relationship with God? That in the way that we go through suffering, in the way that we comport ourselves, the way that we work, the way that we pray, the way that we move forward, the way that we live life with a certain buoyancy, with a, with a certain kind of poise, does it say anything about the greatness of God? And so let's, let's look at it through three words. They all start with A. One is anticipate. That's about a perspective. It's about anticipating the suffering coming. Number two is really going to be about pragmatics. It's going to be actions. And then number three, it's going to be about a partnership that no one, you know, the reality is, is that as a disciple of Jesus, none of us ever go through our suffering or through these moments of pain and agony and, and you know, trouble and adversity by ourselves. There is a partnership or there's an ally that we go through all of this with. So as we approach suffering, let's think first about anticipate. James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I don't think that we have to go very far in understanding what a trial is. A, a trial is a difficult time. A, a trial is a time in which our character is tested. A, a trial is something that we go through where our values are being tested and the things that we hold close to, to our heart in terms of making sense of the world, all of that gets tested. When you go through a trial, when you go through that adversity, there is no part of your person that isn't being stressed. And it's a time of pain. It hurts. Sometimes it's deep and it's profound and it goes on for a long time because of the, the profoundness of the loss that you experience. It always involves some kind of suffering, even if it's a betrayal. It's It's anguish. But the thing that James is teaching us here is, is that a wise person of faith knows that it's absolutely coming. A fellow by the name of Tim Keller has written a really, really good book addressing from the perspective of faith suffering. And he writes these words, There is nothing more important than to learn how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of painful adversity. How so? More important. Nothing more important. How so? Well, in his book, Keller says that, that in our culture, we have done a really, especially in, in, in this uh, latter part of, the, of the, the 20th century and really in the beginning of the 21st century, we've really done a poor job as a culture preparing people to suffer. And in a nutshell, what he says is that as our culture becomes more and more secular, what that means 
is that not only are we losing transcendence, you know, things that are spiritual, things that, that are beyond our control and understanding of it and a way of dealing with it, but it means that there isn't a God. And if there isn't a God, then secondly, it means that there is only this life and there's nothing after that. You remember, you know, those of us who grew up during the, 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 the day game show uh, history and the television, you know, they would say at the end of the show, here's some parting gifts for, you know, for participating in the game. When you have a secular worldview where there is no afterlife, where there is no God, there isn't any parting gift for just participating in life. What he's saying is that this is all there is. If you have removed God and His transcendence from this life, then this world is all there is. And if that's true, there is no God, there is no afterlife, then suffering is something that you have to remove in this life. That suffering is something that has to be removed in this life. It has to be removed from the human experience. And that's why you see a lot of work and a lot of energy and a lot of resources that are being expended uh, on a a regular daily basis to make sure that we stave off the suffering, stave off the, the hardship, stave off the trouble as much as we can. It's because we're not being prepared for it when it does come, then it feels like there is just an an anvil, a safe has been dropped on us. That suffering is something that has to be removed from human experience rather than human beings being prepared for the experience of suffering. N.T. Wright has has written a book on suffering. It's called uh, Evil and the Justice of God. And in it, he reminds us that there are signs of this all over the place as we interact with with folks, and sometimes we even interact in the thinking of people who make up the church. He says, not to put too fine a point on it, when people say that certain things are unacceptable, now that we are living in the 21st century, they are appealing to an assumed doctrine of progress, which means to say that we keep thinking that as human beings we're getting better and better and better and better, and as we get better, we're also becoming more moral, or our ethic is getting better, and that things like these tremendous tragedies that involve a lot of the loss of human life, massacres and things like that, and innocent people being hammered by, by, by terrible people, then what you see is people assuming this doctrine of progress that says something like that's not supposed to happen in a time like this. In other words, they say things like, things like that just don't happen anymore. And to say that, Wright is saying, To say that or to think that is to not understand the world realistically or human beings. When you hear a disciple of Jesus say something like that, things like that should should not happen in a time like this, or and you hear sort of that assumed doctrine of progress, when you hear a disciple say something like that, that disciple is in danger. Why? Because they're not prepared for the trial that is absolutely coming. Human life encounters events. Our lives encounter events that sometimes are so impossibly random that it doesn't do anything besides you know, the creating of the pain and the adversity and the suffering. But it reminds us that events happen that are beyond our control. Last Sunday night, we were looking at Psalm 23. And we got to that section 
where uh, right in the middle of the psalm, David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. One of the things that we tried to draw out of that text was, was noticing what David doesn't say when he enters into the valley of the shadow of death. He does not say, I can't believe that this is happening to me right now. David was one of those guys that went through a lot in his life that was not good, not positive, not the kind of experience that we would want for ourselves or for our families or even for our enemies. But David never says, I can't believe that this is happening to me. And David doesn't say, I just knew that this was going to happen to me. David says, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And so the Bible approaches James approaches suffering and trials and approaches the world more realistically they will come these these bad days and the disciple is to be prepared for the suffering which leads us to the actions he says in verses two and three and four consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, quite frankly, church, people through the ages have struggled with the first four words of this verse. Consider it pure joy. Now, how can it be a joy to suffer? Anyone who likes to suffer is not really put together well emotionally. There's sort of a masochistic vein running through their, their, their thinking. When people suffer, they hurt. And when people are going through trials, they suffer. And when people experience a loss that rocks their world and seems to sweep their legs out from under them, then, then they, they grieve. So what does joy have to do with that? Well, one of the things I think that we have to notice here is that James does not speak of the experience of, of suffering as an experience of joy. What he's talking about is the, the consideration, the considering, the thinking, to consider that the final result of the suffering might be a path to becoming a mature, balanced, stable person in a world that's full of thorns and thistles. This is one of the things that Peter teaches the church to understand as well when it comes to suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various what? By various what? Trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith salvation of your souls there is a joy that comes to the person who understands that suffering can turn them into a diamond a person of strength who has a, a, a kind of a, a, a buoyancy that doesn't drop down into the fetal position when life takes a turn to the south a, a person that, that James is going to describe as perfect and complete and lacking nothing and so there's the consideration in joy of what the suffering will bring about in your life as a disciple of Jesus. But then number two, the second action is asking. In verse 5 he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him 
ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. You know, a lot of times when we approach these verses and the asking of wisdom, what we're thinking in our minds is that the asking of wisdom is to be in generalities. I think the request here is that this is a wisdom that this uh, he's counseling the church to ask for. It is the wisdom to be able to go through the suffering faithfully. This past week, I uh, met with a sister in Christ, not from this church, but one who wanted to meet with me to talk about uh, kind of an ordeal that she's going through. And we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, and the entire uh, nearly hour and a half, nearly two hours that we were together, she cried the entire time. It was a profound experience of pain in her life, not just, not just to be going through that trial, but to even talk about it and think about it with somebody else that's completely removed from it. And we talked about all of the different pragmatic ways that she might be able to, to deal with suffering until we got down to the place of, of prayer. I asked this sister, I said, well, you know, before you, she goes, you, you know, that's right, I, I just need to pray, I need to pray, I need to pray. And I said, hey, before you go, I want you, I want you to tell me what you're going to pray for. And she says, I'm going to pray for, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for, I don't know, what am I going to pray for? I said, let's write it down. And so we began to walk through what she had talked to me about for about an hour and 45 minutes and to write down specific things that she was going to be praying for God to bless her with and the people she was involved with and, and her own humility and ability to see what was going on and maybe there were some things that she needed to change about her life. So you know, clarity to see what the real problem is and, and, and clarity and discernment to see if the problem is her and, and patience for people that are not going to treat her very well and, and to be long-suffering and to be persevering and, and kind in the words that she chooses to speak to these people that right now she's in a little bit of a row with. When the Bible says, ask for wisdom, ask specifically for the wisdom that you need. James will counsel later on prayer in James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not what? Ask. The third thing is to unite or to bring together. In verse 6, he says, He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and, and tossed by the wind. To not doubt is not about having these intellectual uncertainties about what it is that's going on. Verse 8, uh, later down, uh, two verses later, he talks about the danger of being a double-minded man. It's the problem of not having your mind made up. It's, it's the difference between, between saying that you believe in God and then running into a situation in life, a trial in this particular context, running into a trial and realizing that, yeah, you believe in God, but there's also a couple of other things that you believe in as well. That's what it means to be double-minded. It's about divided loyalties. And what James is saying is that when you're going through this suffering, that is absolutely coming, that one day you will encounter in this life, because of the thorns and the thistles, this kind of suffering, one of the things that you need to do besides, besides asking specifically and, 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 to, and, and to understand from, from a wider perspective what's going to be happening to you in this suffering is to remember that you are completely united to God, which means that you burn the bridge to any other answer that might come to you to deal with this. It's about burning the bridges to all the other possibilities and hanging on to the God as the one and only anchor to your soul. 
Most people do not know that they are building their house on sand until they go into a trial. Well, the last thing we'll talk about this morning is ally. Blessed is a man, verse 12, who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. One of the things that strikes me throughout this entire section, the first 12 verses of of James 1, is the presence of God is laced throughout the entire passage. God is working with you through your suffering and through your trials. It's God that is granting wisdom to you. It's God who is rewarding. In other words, you are not alone in the suffering. And God is, is the one you love. I'm, I'm struck at the place of love, the, the position, it, the, the importance that it plays in, in remaining faithful to God in trials. Remember uh, the passage from 1 Peter chapter 1 that we've already looked at, that you're being tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you what? Love Him. You love Him. This love, where does it come from? You know, that's one of the amazing things. Uh, You you know, how how can you really hate somebody that loves you? I mean, especially especially if, if, if you're put together reasonably well emotionally, how do you hate somebody that loves you? What happens is when you encounter somebody that loves you, I mean really loves you, and are consistent and continuous in it and, and it and it's demonstrable, it's something that you experience, then you can't help but like that person. And the more that person loves you and the more that you interact with that love, the more that that begins to create love on your part for that person. And I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about the feelings that you have for another human being that are profound and deep because of connectedness. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 12 where the Hebrew writer who's writing also to some people who are having to make a decision about what they're going to do with their faith because it's getting a little bit tough to remain a Christian. He says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the things that John did really well this morning in talking about the communion, that we, the Lord's Supper that we partake in, is it is a reminder of, uh, to us that it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. And that it's His death on the cross that brings us into relationship with, with the Christ and with God the Father. But at the same time, it's a reminder to us that it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross, was it? I mean, you had the creator of the heavens and the earth, who said at one point that I have at my disposal 10,000 angels. I love the way that Max Lucado talks about it. He talks about the, the, the angels just ready to come over the edge of heaven and plummet to the earth to rescue Jesus. But they didn't come. Why? It took more than, than nails to keep Jesus on that cross. It was love. Hebrew writer says it's joy set before him. When you think about it, what, what joy, what joy did Christ not have in heaven 
that would cause him to endure and to stay on that cross and die that death after having suffered for our sins the way that, that he did. What is it? What joy was missing? It was us. We were the joy that was missing in heaven. It was love that kept Christ on that cross in order for us to find that joy and to experience that joy and to be the recipient of God's joy forever and ever in eternity. And when you get that, you too endure in your trials and your sufferings. Because you see what He endured for you. Because you love Him, you endure for Him. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Maybe you've been struggling with a trial, suffering, some kind of adversity that's come into your life. This is a great time for you to let the church know about that and for the shepherds of our church to pray and our church family to pray for you and to help you in whatever way that we can. Or it might be that this is the day that you want to make make the cross of Jesus, that salvation, His resurrection, that is the, the, the promise of more to come, the resurrection that you will experience when you're in the Christ. Maybe today is the day in which you experience that by having your sins washed away in baptism and confessing that Jesus is Lord. Whatever the case, whatever the need, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God together. In thee, O Savior mine, dwelleth my soul in peace divine. Peace 